Uh, you can see the, the question there on the uh, inside of the welcome card. Uh, which voices do you really listen to? Uh, and my sermon outline there. Which voices are you listening to? Which voices would you say uh, you're really tuning into or pay attention, uh, paying attention to in your life? Which voices are you allowing to shape and influence and really control your entire life? I think the reality is we all live with this constant chatter going on in our minds. All sorts of different voices. Sometimes uh, those voices are, are really clear to us. We, we can absolutely distinguish which voice we're listening to and whether, frankly, we want to keep on listening to them or, or have that voice shape our life in any way uh, at all. Uh, other times, the, the voices in our minds are all just a bit of a blur. You know, one voice blurring into the next one. Uh, without much discrepancy, but sometimes these voices are helpful, sometimes these voices are unhelpful. I wonder, as you sit here and you think about which voices you're listening to, uh, what do you think? Which voices are you listening to? Which voices are you allowing to kind of shape and control and have authority in your life? When I was growing up, I would say that it was my dad's voice that was the most influential voice that I listened to. And most of the time, frankly, that was helpful. My dad's quite a wise man, a godly man. Uh, but sometimes it wasn't so helpful. Uh, I've maybe shared some of these things before. Uh, my dad, uh, uh, if I, say, got 90% on a test, my dad, almost without fail, would say, what happened to the other 10%? And, you know, uh, maybe you're a dad, uh, maybe you can think, if I said that, or maybe your dad said that to you, you know they're kind of joking, it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, uh, but over time it built, it built, certainly in my life, this sense that my dad was just impossible to please. It was just really hard work. Or, or my dad would also, uh, I distinctly remember my dad saying several times, uh, no son of mine is ever going to have a big head. You know, that, that was his thing, and maybe you think, oh gee, he failed on that front. But anyway, uh, <laughs> that's what he, he kind of said. He said, no son of mine is going to have a big head. Uh, and it, I, I guess I was doing okay at school and uh, in music, and, um, and Dad saw that. And see, he kind of saw it as his mission in life to keep me humble, uh, to keep me grounded. Uh, so as a consequence, Dad never really said anything by way of praise or affirmation to me, almost at all. And that's at least part of the reason why, as I grew up, I became really quite an anxious people pleaser. You know, I let my dad's voice dominate my life. I kind of lived trying to kind of get his approval. And I took that into all sorts of different relationships in my life. Now, listening to my dad's voice was mostly really helpful. But in some ways not. And no doubt my own kids will say the same thing about me at some point. Uh, more recently, I found myself listening to the voices in particular uh, of pastors and church planters. I also sometimes go along uh, to conferences uh, with other uh, people who've planted churches. Uh, and you know how these conferences go. Well, I don't know if you do, but you know, you're kind of in the mingling phase. They say it starts at this time, but they don't tell you there's half an hour rego and everyone's having tea and coffee. And, uh, and so you're all chatting. It's kind of the small talk moment. Uh, but there's one question that's always bubbling beneath the surface, uh, which is, how big is your church? That's really what everyone wants to know. Uh, how big, how many people attend your church? Uh, and sometimes, in our most godly moments, that's a, that's a perfectly fine question. 
Because you're just interested in hearing about the work of the gospel around this particular network. You want to praise God and give thanks for how he's been at work. Uh, But lots of the time, it's just not that okay. Personally, it's easy for me to get sucked into the comparison game. And so I either leave that conversation feeling full of pride because, well, our church is going better than theirs, uh, at least that's the judgment I've made, or I leave the conversation feeling full of despair because our church has started around about the same time and they've got two or three hundred more people than us. But all of us are listening to voices of some kind. It's basically kind of impossible to switch off those voices in our minds. So we do have to ask ourselves, which voices are we listening to? Which voices are we paying attention to? Which voices are we allowing to have a controlling influence in our lives? And maybe you picked it up as the passage was read, but in today's passage, God wants us to listen to Jesus. It's very clear in verse 5. Look at verse 5. God the Father says, This is my Son whom I love, with uh, with him I am well pleased. So what? So listen to him. This is who he is, so listen to him. In the midst of all the different voices in the world, God wants you to listen to Jesus. He wants you to pay attention to Jesus, to tune in to Jesus' voice above all other voices, to allow his voice to be the controlling influence in your life. So what I want to do for most of the rest of our time is give you five reasons from this passage for why you should listen to Jesus. Five reasons. And then we'll talk about what does that look like in practice. Uh, Five reasons. The first is uh, you should listen to Jesus because, as Rachel was just saying in the kids' talk, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Matthew goes uh, to great lengths in just this passage to show us that Jesus is God. He does that uh, primarily by uh, drawing attention to all these links back to the Old Testament. So I'll point out a couple. Uh, You'll notice in verse 1, if you look at verse 1, that Peter, James and John uh, go up a mountain with Jesus. If you know a bit about the story of the Bible... Uh, you'll know that often very significant things happen on mountains. God often reveals his glory on mountains. But most notably, Exodus chapters 19 to 24. God's rescued his people from Egypt. Uh, He's brought them through the wilderness. He's gathered them at Mount Sinai for the purpose of revealing his glory to them. Uh, So it's significant that this event happens on a mountain. Second, uh, notice that it's only Peter, James and John on this mountain with Jesus. It's a bit of a select group, a kind of inner circle of Jesus' disciples. And exactly the same thing happened in Exodus 19 to 24. Right in Exodus 24, God reveals his glory to a select group of Israel's leaders. It's Moses and the elders of Israel. So you can jot down the verse if you like. I'll read it, but it's Exodus 24, verses 9 to 11. We read this. Uh, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Ibihu uh, and the uh, 70 elders of Israel uh, went up the mountain and saw the God of Israel. Uh, Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli as bright blue as the sky. Uh, But God did not raise his hand against these leaders uh, of of the Israelites. They saw God uh, and they ate and drank. So it's significant that this happens on a mountain 
and that it happens with just a, a select group of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James and John, just like only the elders uh, of uh, Israel back in Exodus 24. Uh, the third thing is in verse 5. Matthew says uh, that a bright cloud covers everyone on the mountain. Uh, a cloud covers the mountain and a voice comes from the cloud. Uh, likewise, when God reveals himself in Exodus, he descends upon Mount Sinai in a cloud. Right, Exodus 19, verse 16. Uh, on, the, uh, on, uh, sorry, uh, on, the morning, on the morning of the third day, uh, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the whole mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled at the sight of this cloud. Uh, Exodus 24, verses 15 and 16. Exodus 24, 15 and 16. When Moses uh, went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled down on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. This is all through the Old Testament. Uh, this cloud of God's glory symbolizing God's glorious presence. So it's pretty clear in Matthew chapter 17 uh, that Matthew's wanting us to see a parallel between what's gone on here on this mountain and what happened on the mountain in Exodus chapters 19 to 24. There is a very clear parallel, but there's a very important difference as well. Uh, in, in the Exodus narrative, uh, Moses goes up the mountain and in Exodus chapter 34, he comes down the mountain and his face is glowing, his face is radiant why? Because he is reflecting the glory of God. Right, but in this passage, Jesus is not just reflecting the glory of God, is he? Jesus is revealing the glory of God. The very glory of God is emanating from Jesus himself. If you were to think about, uh, uh, Rachel was using the picture of a sun. Right, if you were to think about, uh, think about a mirror and the sun then Jesus is not just a mirror kind of reflecting the glory of the sun. Jesus is like the glory of the sun itself. Jesus is not just reflecting God's glory, he's revealing God's glory on this mountain. So that's the first reason why you should listen to Jesus. I think it's pretty good, we could stop right there. Jesus is God, uh, you know, you ought to listen to him. But I've got more. So, second reason, uh, you should listen to Jesus uh, because Jesus is the only way to approach God. The only way to, to experience the presence of God. Right, don't, don't miss, I mean, sometimes you're reading your Bible and you just skip over things, especially if you've read a story lots of times before. Uh, but we mustn't miss how, it, really, it's pretty incredible in the big story of the Bible that Peter, James and John actually get to see Jesus' glory. It's really quite amazing, right? This shows us that Jesus doesn't only reveal God's glory, uh, Jesus is the only way to enter God's glory, God's glorious presence. If you're familiar with the story of the Bible, you might remember that, that since Adam and Eve were kind of kicked out of the garden, God's glorious presence has been deadly dangerous for human beings. Right? In all our sin and imperfection, well, we can't go anywhere near God's presence without it being dangerous for us. It'd be like a human being deciding to go for a walk on the surface of the sun. There's no problem with the sun, right? The sun is good. The, the sun brings life to everything in our world. But the sun's dangerous if you don't approach it with the utmost respect. 
And that's the relationship that we as sinful human beings have with God. The presence of God is deadly dangerous. We can't even look at God's glory, let alone enter God's glory. So in Exodus 33, verses 18 to 20, Moses says to God, "Uh, Now show me your glory, Lord. And God says, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name to you, uh, the Lord, uh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion. But you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. No one can see me and live. Moses was desperate to see God in all his glory. He longed for, for nothing more than that. But God said he couldn't, right? because in his sin and imperfection, he would surely die if he saw God. So here in verses 2 and 3, Peter, James and John do see God's glory. It's incredible. They see God's glory emanating from Jesus. That's why in verse four, uh, 4, Peter does that weird thing of suggesting that they build three tents, three shelters. Uh, It is literally tense. He wants to build one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And if you're just reading the story for the first time, you think, well, that's that's a little bit weird. Uh, But if you're in Peter's shoes as a first century Jew, uh, there is quite a bit of Old Testament background for this. So I just said that in Exodus 19 to 24, God uh, gathers his people at Mount Sinai. He reveals his glory to them. Uh, And then in the next chapter, God says, I want you to build me a tent. Uh, literally called the tabernacle, uh, and that was so that God's glorious presence, the cloud of his glory, could dwell with his people wherever they went. Kind of a a portable home for God, uh, a place for him to dwell with his people, and Peter knew that. He's not completely whacked out to suggest this, but what he didn't quite get uh, is what Matthew's telling us in this passage, which is that Jesus is now like the ultimate tabernacle, the ultimate temple, The ultimate place uh, where if you want to experience the presence of God, you must come to Jesus and nowhere else. That's where you see God's glory. That's where you experience God's glory. Uh, John, who was also on this mountain, reflects on this. uh, And by the power of God's Spirit, he gets it a little bit more. Uh, So in John, in his Gospel, John 1 verse 14, uh, he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and pitched his tent among us, tabernacled among us, and what happened? We beheld his glory. We saw God in his glory. John understands that in Jesus, God in his glory has literally pitched his tent in our world that we might see his glory. So that's why you should listen to Jesus. Because Jesus is the only person through which you can experience the presence of God. He is the ultimate tabernacle, the ultimate temple, the place where we come face to face with God. Third, you should listen to Jesus because Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. If you really want to know me, 
Uh, you know me by my words primarily. You could watch me and observe me before church and you might think, oh gee, Aaron's a bit rude, you know. Uh, but then when you sit down and listen to my words, you think, oh, he's not a bad bloke, right? Uh, you know someone mostly by listening to their words. That's how we reveal ourselves to one another. God is no different, right? And I'm saying that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. If you want to know God, you must come to Jesus. Right, and what, hints us, uh, what gives us a hint of that uh, is the fact that uh, Moses and Elijah appear on this mountain, which is a little bit weird, isn't it? You know, Jesus is transfigured and all of a sudden Moses and Elijah pop up. Well, what's that about? It's because Moses and Elijah represent the two major strands of the Old Testament. Now, they represent the law and the prophets. Now, the law and the prophets. In the Old Testament, God revealed himself by giving his law through Moses and by sending prophets uh, like Elijah. Uh, so in that sense, Israel had spent all, like, like all sorts of time listening to both Moses and Elijah, listening to the law and the prophets. Uh, and yet here we see that Moses and Elijah are listening to Jesus, aren't they? They're having a conversation with Jesus because even they know that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. Well, what does that mean? Well, first, it means that Jesus fulfills all the prophecies of the Old Testament. Every strand of Old Testament prophecy finds its fulfillment in Jesus. So even in this passage, if you look in verse 5, in verse 5, God says, This is my Son whom I love, uh, with whom I am well pleased. Maybe you've got a Bible with some footnotes or something in it. If you do, uh, if you don't know, uh, you'll see that the words, this is my son there, come from Psalm 2, verse 7. And the words, uh, with whom I am well pleased, come from Isaiah 42, verse 1. A little bit about those. Uh, If you were to kind of click on that as if it was a hyperlink and go back to Psalm 2, uh, you'd discover that Psalm 2 is a psalm that was sung whenever a king of Israel was appointed And on that day, the king of Israel uh, was said to become God's son. They were appointed as God's son. And of course, the great hope of Psalm 2 was that one day God would send his true son. God would send his true king, the the one who who was going to establish and rule over his eternal kingdom. And not just have have a throne that lasted for 10 or 20 or 30 years, but one that lasted forever. That's Psalm 2, this is my son. Uh, in contrast, Isaiah 42 verse 1 is, one of, is from one of several passages in, in this section of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 to 55, uh, or really to 66, uh, which has uh, all sorts of passages uh, about a suffering servant figure. Uh, a servant uh, who is ultimately going to bring blessing to everyone on the planet, right, kind of salvation to the nations, but he's going to do it through his rejection and suffering and death. So what's Matthew telling us? Or what's God the Father telling us by referencing these two Old Testament prophecies? He's saying both that Jesus, like we saw last week, Jesus is the king in God's kingdom. Jesus is God's true son, the Messiah who's come to establish and rule over his eternal kingdom. Psalm 2 is fulfilled in Jesus, but he's going to establish God's kingdom through his suffering, his rejection and suffering and death. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 42 of Isaiah 53, of Isaiah 61. Every Old Test- all the prophecies of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. A couple just in this passage. Our second, all the requirements of God's law are fulfilled in Jesus. 
The requirements for for entering God's presence that that were given uh, through Moses uh, to God's people. Uh, We've already seen that that Jesus is the ultimate tabernacle, the ultimate temple. If you want to come to know God, uh, you have to come uh, through Jesus. Uh, Just like in the Old Testament, if you wanted to enter God's presence, you had to come to the temple, to the tabernacle. That's where God's glorious presence dwelt. Jesus is the ultimate tabernacle. What does that mean? It means today that if you want to experience the presence of God, you don't go to some, you don't go to some physical temple or to a cathedral or to any other kind of sacred space. You might experience the temple of God. You might experience the presence of God in those places. But if you really want to experience the presence of God, you go to Jesus. He's the ultimate temple. Uh, He's not just the ultimate temple, he's also the ultimate sacrifice. What did the Old Testament law say? It said that if you came to the temple, uh, sacrifices had to be offered on your behalf for your sins. But all those sacrifices in the Old Testament were like signposts pointing to Jesus and his ultimate sacrifice on the cross. That there was a once for all sacrifice uh, to cleanse us from all of our sins. Which is why every Sunday when you come to church, we don't meet you at the front with a whole lot of lambs and goats and bulls. Because we don't have to do that anymore. You know, Jesus is the ultimate tabernacle, he's the ultimate sacrifice, and he's also the ultimate priest. Right? Well, when you came to the tabernacle in the Old Testament, uh, you, a priest in the temple had to offer the sacrifice on your behalf. But all those priests pointed to Jesus. Jesus, who as our great high priest, offered the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. That's why now if you want to approach God, you don't have to go through some priest in your local church. If you want to confess your sins to God, you can confess them directly to God through Jesus. You don't have to come and talk to me. Because Jesus is our great high priest. You see, Elijah appears on this mountain because all the prophecies of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus and Moses appears on this mountain because all the requirements of God's law are fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. That's why in verse 8, look at verse 8, what happens? Peter and and James and John, they're they're a bit startled uh, about what's going on and they look up and Moses and Elijah have disappeared. Only Jesus is left because he's the one you need to listen to. Right? That's why you should listen to Jesus. He's the ultimate revelation of God. In the past, Hebrews 1, God spoke in many and various ways, but now he's spoken by his son. So you listen to him. A fourth, listen to Jesus, because one day his glory, which is now hidden, will be fully revealed. You remember last week Jesus finished the end of chapter 16 by reminding us that one day he will return in glory. So what happens in this passage, this whole experience on the mountain, is a little bit like, it's a little glimpse, a little taste, at least for Peter, James and John, of that future glory that will be fully revealed when Jesus returns. And this would have been a massive encouragement to Jesus' disciples. Uh, at least to Peter, James and John, 
And I don't know if they listened to Jesus when he said, don't tell anyone about this. You know, maybe they led on to some of the other apostles. I'm not sure. But it would have been a massive encouragement to them, right? A real assurance, right? If we listen to Jesus and take up our cross and follow him, then we'll one day take up our crowns in glory like him. If we listen to him and share in the sufferings of Christ, one day we'll share in his glories when he returns and his full glory is revealed. And I think we need this encouragement too. We live our lives in this world and increasingly Jesus and his people seem to be weak and impotent and insignificant and marginalised. And in the midst of that, it can be tempting to think, I'm going to stop listening to Jesus and start listening to the people who seem to be really influential. I know that what this politician says doesn't quite match up with what Jesus says, but they're making a real difference. So I'll sort of become a disciple of them rather than Jesus. This influential academic, you know, I'll follow after them rather than Jesus. You sort of get to... Because they're the ones making a real difference. Jesus just seems to be so powerless and his people just don't seem to be making a difference. Right? But yes, Jesus might and his people might seem to be insignificant now, but one day they'll be far from insignificant. Right? Jesus' glory that was largely hidden in his first coming will one day be fully revealed. So you should listen to Jesus. Uh, fifth, uh, you should listen to Jesus uh, because he was willing to give his life for you. Uh, look at, at verse 9. Uh, verse 9, Jesus uh, tells Peter, James and John not to tell anyone uh, about their experience on the mountain. Well, Jesus is always doing this, isn't he? Uh, but uh, the, the reason is, isn't it, that, that uh, now is the time, Jesus has just said, for his suffering, not his glory. For his cross, not his crown. So he doesn't want kind of things getting too carried away on the glory front, you see. Like now's the time uh, for, for suffering, for his cross. And then in verse 10, uh, Peter, James and John ask Jesus about Elijah. Right? They've just seen Elijah up on the mountain uh, and it's got them thinking about some passages from the Old Testament. Uh, for example, uh, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11 you can write it down, you can read through 2 Kings chapter 2 later on if you like. But uh, what happens in 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 11, uh, let me read it. Uh, As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared uh, and separated the two of them and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Right, so Elijah, the prophet Elijah, never physically died in the Old Testament. He was just kind of whisked up to heaven in a whirlwind. So you have this expectation that maybe Elijah might come back one day. Malachi 4 verse 5, God says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. It's because of passages like this that the Jewish teachers in this day and Peter, James and John would have thought that Elijah was going to come back before God's king comes to establish God's kingdom. So they've just seen Elijah up on the mountain. They're kind of pretty excited. Jesus really is God's king. God's kingdom really is coming. But there's one problem. The problem is that the Jews expected, verse 11, that when Elijah came back, he would restore all things amongst God's people. That he'd bring this kind of massive spiritual reformation 
amongst God's people. Before God's king came. So where is this massive restoration of God's people? Where's the, the mass repentance? Well, in verse 12, Jesus says Elijah did come. But when he came, the the Jewish teachers didn't recognize him. In fact, they did to him what they wished, which is code for. They rejected him and ultimately weren't that disappointed that he was killed. Jesus is pointing out that John the Baptist is this Elijah-like figure. I'm not sure you're bound to believe that he's kind of Elijah reincarnate or something. No, he's an Elijah-like figure. John had already come. He'd come to call God's people to repentance, to prepare the way for God's king. But John had been rejected. And Jesus' point being, why should you expect anything different from me? If John's the forerunner for me, the one who's preparing the way for me, you've seen the path that he went down. That's the path I'm going down to, Jesus saying. Yes, you've seen a glimpse of my glory, but now is the time for my rejection and suffering and death just like John. Which really brings us again to verse 7. If you look at verse 7, I mentioned earlier, Psalm 2, verse 7 is referenced here, Isaiah 42, verse 1, and probably also Genesis uh, chapter 22, uh, verse, uh, what is it, Genesis, um, let me find the right verse for you. Genesis 22, verse 2, if you want to write it down. Genesis 22, verse 2. God says, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And in Genesis 22, verse 2, God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. Maybe you can see how this is a little bit connected. But Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only son whom he loved on a mountain in the region of Moriah. So also God the Father is willing to sacrifice his only son, the Lord Jesus, whom he loved on a mountain outside Jerusalem. This taste of Jesus' glory is going to, on a mountain is going to be followed by a different mountain. A mountain where he's strung up on a cross. And he did that so that sinful people like us might be welcomed into his glorious presence just like Peter, James and John were on this mountain. That's why you should listen to Jesus. Because he was willing to give his life for you. So that's five reasons from this passage of why you should listen to Jesus. Maybe you're utterly persuaded by that and you're like, but what does it look like? Yeah, you've got me worked up about listening to Jesus. Uh, What does it look like practically? Uh, So I want to finish by suggesting three things. What does it look like to listen to Jesus? Uh, First, uh, listening to Jesus is primarily about listening to his words in the Bible. Now maybe it's a bit controversial for some people, but uh, I'm not saying that the Bible is the only way that you could listen to Jesus. Jesus, by the power of his spirit, may indeed speak to you in other ways. But in the end, if Jesus speaks to you in a thought or a dream or a vision, uh, if Jesus speaks to you through some other means, how do you know that it's Jesus speaking to you rather than some other voice? You know by testing it against Jesus' words in the Bible. His Spirit-inspired words in the Bible. That's how you know. 
So always, listening to Jesus must primarily be about listening to his words in the Bible. Jesus will never say something to you that somehow contradicts what he's already said in the Bible. So that's, that's the first important plank to put down, I think. Listening to Jesus uh, is primarily about listening to his words in the Bible. Second, listening to Jesus means that his voice has the most authority in your life. His voice is the loudest in your life. It's the most influential in your life. For example, before I really became a Christian, one of the voices in my head said, Aaron, don't get too caught up with all this idea about sin. You know, Christians, they're so intense, they're always telling you that you're a sinner and you need to be saved, but don't worry about it too much. God knows that you're basically a pretty good person, you're doing your best uh, to be nice and and all that sort of thing, Uh, and so in the end, it'll all work out okay. Don't worry about the sin thing too much. Uh, But Jesus' voice says, I'm sorry, but you're not that good a person. (laughs) In fact, you're so sinful that the Son of Man must die for you. He must be rejected and suffer and be killed uh, so that you might be saved. Uh, So at that point, you've got a choice, don't you? Which voice are you going to listen to? You know, listen to your voice or the voice of someone else or, or the voice of Jesus? Another voice in your head might be kind of the opposite end of things. Kind of like, you're useless. You're a failure. You're a lost cause. God could never, ever accept or love someone like you. Maybe not in those words exactly, but that's the gist that you listen to. And yet the voice of Jesus says, no, I love you so much, I'm willing to give my life for you. To save you. And once again, whose voice are you going to listen to? At some point, you've got to decide. Am I going to trust in my feelings or in Jesus' word? Who's going to win? Whose voice is going to have the the controlling influence in your life? Listening to Jesus means that it's his voice. His voice has the most authority, the most power. It's the the one that you tune into. Even when your feelings, you you feel uncomfortable, you say, Jesus is God. Jesus gave his life for me. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. I'm going to listen to his voice, not these other voices. Right, so uh, listening to Jesus means that his voice has the most authority in your life. Uh, if that sort of thing's going to happen, if Jesus' voice is going to be the authoritative, controlling influence in your life, uh, then I think it takes quite a bit of discipline. So that's my third point. Listening to Jesus takes discipline. Uh, some of us have been listening to the same really destructive voices for a really long time. Kind of like stuck. I, I, like, I sometimes think that my mind feels a bit like one of those old record players. People know what record players are still. We're in Hipsterville, so we know about records. Uh, so, you know, like one of those record players that keeps getting stuck in the same spot. Gabby and I are recently watching DVDs. You remember those things? Uh, and you know how they got stuck? Right, some of our minds are like that. Our minds just keep getting stuck in the same uh, destructive patterns of thinking. Listening to the same destructive voices over and over again. Right? And aside from any physiological help that you might need, you, you may need that. You may need some medication. Aside from psychological supports that you might need, You might indeed need some of those things. Spiritually speaking, none of that is going to change unless you're disciplined about listening to Jesus. 
That is the key. Right, so over time, you, you, like this is the key. If you're not disciplined about making time to listen to Jesus, then your life, will, your mind will be open slather for every other voice. Over time, we must be disciplined about listening to Jesus so that our thought life can be controlled and ruled and liberated by the truth of Jesus' words. And it doesn't happen by magic. You know, yes, God's at work in us by the power of his spirit, uh, but we do have to have a plan, a bit, a bit of a plan for these things. Well, what might that look like? Well, maybe you just need a bit of a plan for how you're going to read the Bible by yourself. Uh, I've got to be realistic. I'm not saying go home tonight and listen to Jesus 24-7. You know, you're going to read 16 chapters a day and kind of like, it's got to be realistic. Come and talk to me. But we, we need a plan for listening to Jesus, for reading the Bible. Uh, maybe you, uh, you've got to work out a, a way not just of reading the Bible, but of actually thinking about the Bible. It's not that hard, perhaps, to let the words of the Bible kind of move past your eyeballs. <laughs> it's another thing to kind of think through some of the implications of it sometimes, or actually meditate on it, reflect on it a bit. Perhaps asking yourself, how would my life look different right now if I was to actually live out this truth from God's word? What, what might change? How would it look different uh, if I was to choose to trust in Jesus' words rather than in how I feel? How would it look different if I allowed Jesus' voice to shape my life here and here and here? You know those parts of your life that until this point have previously been no-go zones for Jesus? But what if you listen to Jesus in that part of your life? Some of us just need not just a plan for reading the Bible, but a plan for how we're going to think about the Bible a little bit more. And maybe you'd find that easier if you were in a gospel community with some other Christians who are also seeking to listen to Jesus. You can talk about it with one another. You can pray about it with one another. Or maybe you should tee uh, tee up with someone to read the Bible one-on-one. Let's meet together and read the Bible together. Maybe you should just try to be at church more often so that you can hear God's word read and preached a little bit more than every once in a while. The bottom line is that if you're not disciplined about listening to Jesus, you'll spend most of your time listening to other people's voices. And over time, those voices will become the controlling influence in your life. Our minds are like a little bit of a battleground. And we've got to be tuning in to Jesus' voice regularly, that the truth of his word would control and shape and liberate our minds. And you can read more about that. I didn't have time today, but read more about it in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5. If you want to read more about this, you should read that. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5. Being a Christian is about listening to Jesus. Let me urge you to do that. Uh, allow the words of our Lord Jesus to be the controlling, shaping influence in your, in your mind, in your life. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this, your word, and I pray that you might have in some way answered our prayer that we sang and that I prayed, uh, that you have shown us Christ in his glory, and indeed why we should give ourselves to listening to him and allowing his voice uh, to be the controlling influence in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen.